You no. smell so good. What? Matt's tea smells nice. Oh, I thought you said you smell so good. <laughs> oh. That's I, why that gave you that You all smell terrible. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. And today we are going to do our long-awaited uh, Ask Us Anything episode. and uh, Ask Weeds Anything. Ask Weeds Anything. We are Got weeds. a brand, Matt. I, I apologize. Um, AWA. But really, instead of wasting a lot of time, we have a lot of questions. We got a lot <laughs> of good cranky questions. today, everybody. Um, We're taping too late. <laughs> I don't like to do things in the afternoon, frankly. Um, well, let's, let's get to the question. Let's do it. Okay, let's start. Let's start with something really weedsy. Let's start with Swedish administrative data. So I'm going to ask this question probably for Matt. This comes from all the way from Sweden, from Jessica Erickson, who asks... Um, I've always wondered why the U.S. seems to have the worst statistics. As a Swede, I'm always weirded out by the talking about Sweden statistics, but there doesn't seem to be any in the U.S. And she apologized for her bad English. That was actually quite good English. But what's the deal? What's the deal with Swedish administrative data and our administrative I mean, data? In this case, it's actually Sweden that's unusual. I mean, the reason we repeatedly uh, come to Sweden for this is that Sweden is unusual in allowing its government statistical agencies to have access to administrative data from tax authorities. The U.S. pattern is much more typical, and for privacy reasons, we do not allow statistical agencies to gain access to other kinds of agencies' direct data. So this is things like the IRS, right? It knows exactly how much money people make. Um, it, the uh, Department of Agriculture knows how much money it's handing out in food stamps, but we rely on surveys to get that kind of information about the American public, even though other arms of the government know all about it. You often get interesting research. We we discussed um, previously Raj Chetty's work, which involved gaining access to IRS data on sort of special terms, uh, specially anonymized. That's like a big deal in the U.S. Right. And you have to be like, you have to have like a special in with them to, to get it done. Uh, it should be possible to set up a system for administrative data to be collected, anonymized, and then publicized. Uh, but, you know, most countries just haven't made it a priority to get good data. All right. I'm going to do a less wheezy question, actually. I'm going to do one that we all have to answer. And I'm going to try to find the, here it is. <laughs> so, Tyler asked, I'd like to hear Sarah, Matt, and Ezra each tell us a book they found most influential to them for understanding American politics or their policy wonk specialization. I think we should go in that order. Sarah, Matt, Ezra. Okay. Um, so I am going to choose a long magazine article, which is close to Boo. a book. Whatever. Because I thought I thought about this. Close to I, a book. This is the decline no, of American in, no, letters. No, no, no. It turned into a book. Fine. <laughs> I'll choose the book version, even though the article version is what I really care about. So I'm going to choose um, Bitter Pill by Stephen Brill, which is a basically book-length article that ran in Time magazine maybe 2012 or so. And, and I'm picking it for two reasons about why it was influential in my own career in writing. The first is just the focus on prices in healthcare it, it, it is something that I think is so essential to healthcare that we often don't cover. And I think he did it in a way that was very humanized, that really told us a narrative and a story. And it suggested that, you know, the problem a lot of times we talk about 
is unnecessary care and us using too much care. And that really wasn't the issue. The problem is the fact it's outlandishly expensive. But the thing I actually was most influential to me about this story wasn't the finding. It was about how we cover policy. I think there's a bias um, often in policy and in journalism to finding the newest thing. And like we find the new study and we we write about it and we say Obamacare enrollment's up because we have new statistics and we write about the new thing. And I think one of the things that was really interesting when that Brill article came out, it was getting a ton of attention. And I know a lot of the other healthcare beat reporters and some of them are saying, well, I don't see why that story is such a big deal. Everyone knows that healthcare prices are high. And clearly not everybody knew that healthcare prices were high because this story was a big deal. And a lot of people were reading about it and a lot of people were caring about it. And that story really influenced my policy journalism because it reminded me that things that have been problematic and issues like for years, that doesn't make them bad stories. We often leave those ones on the cutting room floor. And it really shaped the way I approached my healthcare beat. Instead of writing off a lot of things as, oh, well, that's just how American healthcare works, I became more interested in pursuing old news, which, you know, at a lot of places wouldn't be a great pitch for a beat, but I think it's something a lot of us overlook. So I think that is how it was really influential in my own policy journalism. Who was next on the list? Matt? Uh, so so I'm going to pick for this Douglas Ray's book uh, titled City, Urbanism, and Its End, which is a bit of an odd title because it's it's really just a book about New Haven. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating book that it does a really good job while being a locally focused history of really understanding how big structural economic and policy forces shape the city and and like really basic questions like why is there a city there in New Haven and then why did New Haven like most American cities enter a period of decline in the second half of the 20th century and then how does the presence of Yale University there make it different from other small cities in Connecticut Um, this is not like the single most comprehensive book about urban policy or something. But unlike a lot of really good books about urban policy, it's actually a good book to read that would be, uh, it's like enjoyable and and you would probably finish it if you started it, which I think is a really um, often lacking virtue in books about public policy is being good to read. Um, Plus, you'll learn a lot. It's really fascinating. It influenced my interests enormously. So I'm going to be a jerk and I'm going to pick two, but but it's because together they're sort of formed a a view, a well, you made fun of my choice and you're not even following the rules. Well, you you opened everything up. Now it's total Calvin Ball. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of them is On Deaf Ears, The Limits of the Bully Pulpit by, by George Edwards, who's a political scientist. And the other is Beyond Ideology by Francis Lee. And these two books together really shape my understanding of presidential power and how that power is utilized and also just what political journalism overwhelmingly gets wrong about how the American political system works. So the the quick version is Edwards' book is a really thoroughgoing look at how rare it is that the president is able to rhetorically persuade the country of anything. To the first approximation, very few people listen to most things the president says, and then the people who are tuning in are overwhelmingly convinced before they tune in. So people are not like tuning into the State of the Union or even much more to the point, a speech on a Tuesday to be persuaded. Anybody who is watching is watching you know, on Fox or MSNBC, and they're already convinced. So it, he has a lot of data on this, but, but presidents, this whole idea of public leadership, that if only the president gave a better speech, um, everything would be different, it, it's total bullshit. 
Frances Lee, by contrast, I think shows really clearly that presidents act as party leaders. And she's got all this data showing that even on things that you wouldn't think people have any disagreement about at all, like should the should we try to go to Mars as a society? Or she she has all these examples of things that are non-political or non-polarized. But she shows that the president just taking a position on them makes the prospect of a party line vote more likely. So basically the president, because they're a party leader, because of the party's fortunes are associated with them, anything the president endorses becomes not just about that issue, but also if that goes the way the president wants it to go, then it's like that's a good reason for people to vote for the president. The president is being successful. And because like the minority party wants to win back power and win back the presidency and if they're um, in the minority – in Congress, win back Congress, that gives him a reason to oppose it. So I think the, the the mix of these two for me is that the president is overrated as a public leader. Uh, their ability to convince people through rhetoric and, and speeches is way overrated. But privately, um, and in terms of how they lead Congress, they're much more polarizing than people realize. And what they say about things really, really matters. And public leadership there can actually become very counterproductive because the president going out on, on an issue that maybe is not that controversial, taking a big position on it, uh, is what people think they should do to pass something. But particularly if they need votes from the other party in Congress, that often makes it hard because the fact of something becoming associated with their success makes it like literally irrational for the opposing party to support them on it. All right. That's about a book somehow. Okay. Sarah Hoffman asked, if Republicans move to Social Security slash Medicare reform after tax reform, presumably passes, uh, can they do it through reconciliation? And wouldn't they need to wait for fiscal year 2019 right before the midterms? Or is there some other way you see them trying to pass it? So there are a couple things worth looking at here, um, and I don't want to fully do the calendar for memory because they do have to create new reconciliation instructions to do this, uh, and I don't know exactly when those would hit or expire. But my sense is they can form Medicare. What's really important here is that the Bird Rule, which governs when you can or cannot use budget reconciliation, has just one has a number of unusual provisions. But one unusual provision is just you can't do Social Security. Um, you can do anything else: Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, taxes, all kinds of things. But you cannot touch Social Security using the budget reconciliation process. So they are not going to be able to do big Social Security cuts or even um, benefit increases if they chose to do that through reconciliation. Um, but Medicare reform definitely could be. Medicaid could be. All kinds of other things that relate to, to budget and spending could be. Whether they will, I think, will be an open question. My gut is that Republicans might want to like be caught trying here, right? And the Social Security thing will give them a reason to do that. They may not actually want to cut anything in Medicare or in Social Security, but might want to at least like seem for their own people like they were trying to be fiscally responsible. But even that seems like a bad idea. I just have a lot of trouble believing that they're going to come out with a package about how they're going to cut programs for old people before a midterm when their literal only chance of survival is like old people are mobilized through culture war rhetoric. All right. I'll ask this one. This is for each of us, but I'll go last because I'm asking it. And it's a broader question. So... Um, Alex Weissman, who probably wins the award for submitting the most questions. So thank you, Alex. He asks, what do each of you wish you knew more about? I wish I knew more math. Um, it, it's funny. So my dad is actually a mathematician. So I come from a family that has a lot of math in it. And possibly for that reason, although also for others, I was very bad in math at school. And it's like, I, I think people 
think I know like a, like I know a lot about math for somebody who does like journalism in DC, but like budget math is really easy. Like I would say you don't even need one of like the scientific calculators. Like you you really only need like addition, subtraction, like abacus. <laughs> it's really <laughs> like congressional budget office tables. It's like the simplest math you could possibly imagine. Um, but I would really like to be better at manipulating models. I would like to be better at following the middle of complicated economics papers. I would just like to be able to think in math more clearly than I can. Um, and it's one of these things like I, if I had time, I feel like I'd like to go back and do some continuing education. Uh, but as of yet, I've not, I've not cleared the space to do so. So math. I wish I knew more about China. It's a big country. It seems important. I don't know. That's a, okay. That's it. <laughs> um, I wish I knew more about programming and data manipulation as I get into a lot of reporting projects. I would benefit from having a better understanding of Excel. And I guess that's a more technical skill, kind of like Ezra's talking about with math, that if I could go back in a time machine and like take those classes in college, I probably would have, but I haven't gotten around to doing them in some sort of continuing education sort of way, but maybe one day. All right, enough screwing around here. Enough of these softball questions. It's time for the question on everybody's mind. Can we finally learn what Matt's position on Canadian softwood lumber tariffs is? This question was submitted not, it was the only question submitted twice. Not the only question twice. It was the only so specific question. The only question about Canadian softwood lumber tariffs submitted twice no, for sure. It was the sure. only question that was this specific <laughs> that came up multiple okay, times. So this dispute has been going on for decades. And for an intractable dispute, the policy issue was actually surprisingly clear cut. Uh, so wh what's going on here is that Canadian softwood lumber mostly comes from British Columbia. It mostly comes from publicly owned land. And what's called the stumpage fee, it's like what you have to pay the government to, to cut the trees down, it's set administratively rather than set through market mechanisms. This gives Canadian softwood lumber experts a de facto subsidy relative to American softwood lumber, where you have to pay a market rate to cut the trees down. Uh, it's clear that this is a, a subsidy from the enormous market share that Canadian softwood lumber obtains in the United States. It's much, much cheaper. Um, the, the interesting disputes here is, one is there is a legal dispute, an endless rounds of legal dispute, where American lumber interests say that this is an unfair trade subsidy, and the Canadians counter with a bunch of arguments pertaining to WTO rules that has to do with the sector specificity of the subsidy. It's, it's very complicated. I'm not a trade lawyer. I, I don't really understand who's legally correct here. But the important thing is that the legal issue doesn't hinge on the question of whether or not the softwood lumber is actually subsidized. Another interesting question for the United States is, right, if Canada wants to take its publicly owned forests and then send us lumber at a discount, like, is that really so bad for America? It's clearly bad for American lumbering interests who drive the politics of this. But I, like most of you, I think, um, am not a forestry entrepreneur. I, I don't own any trees. Uh, I do, however, uh, oftentimes uh, live in houses and inhabit buildings that are made out of wood. I think um, cheap housing, uh, affordable housing is, is a good thing. So, you know, that's a perennial trade protection type issue. But are you taking the pro-Canada position here? I mean, I think if the Canadians want to send us subsidized discount softwood lumber, like more power to them. They should maybe reconsider why they want to cut down their forests um, and to send them for us to build cheap houses. Uh, but on the technical question, it is definitely a subsidy to Canadian softwood lumber interests. 
Okay. So Stephen Bank uh, wrote that I have mentioned that I worry about the supply of healthcare rather than our ability to pay for healthcare, and he wants to know if if Sarah and Ezra share my worries. I, this is particularly under a single payer type system, and how hard would it be to increase that supply? Uh, I also wonder what you guys think about this. So I, I so I'm going to actually take the back half of the question first. I don't think it's very hard to increase supply. So I think that is. There are plenty of talented people out there, and I think actually a lot of the supply you need are not the most specialized um, professionals in medicine, but a lot of physician assistants, nurse practitioners. I don't think it's that hard to increase supply. I think the question is, is how you pay for all of it. So I think it's very easy if you give people higher salaries, if you offer these training programs. Medical education is a little bit weird in the United States in that it's heavily financed by Medicare, our program that covers older Americans, finances our residency program. So for doctors, there actually is a artificial cap right now on how many doctors we train every year. That's a product of federal policy. And every year, the medical schools lobby for more residencies, and sometimes they get a few and sometimes they don't. Um, So I don't think increasing supply is that hard. It's a question of what you're paying if you want to, like, mess with the residency system. I think in terms of, in, like, the context of single-payer, this is just about the policy decisions you make. Like, if you want to pay for more supply, you're going to have higher taxes. And it gets back to this conversation about prices, is how much you want to pay people. And I think that's the context where maybe supply is difficult to generate when you're running up against how much do you want to pay these people um, versus how much do you want your healthcare system to cost. That's the equilibrium that I think can get a bit challenging. Yeah, I would just add to that that I think this is one of these things where increasing supply is pretty easy in theory and pretty difficult in practice, which I'm not sure is different really than what Sarah is saying, but just there, it would be a very separate set of fights to have like every state that is not currently letting nurse practitioners or physician's assistants do heavy primary care without a doctor present to get them to do that, right? It, it might. It's not that they're impossible to win necessarily, and certainly the federal government could even maybe tie different kinds of funding to it. But but that that would be that would be difficult. Um, another one you could do is you could make it much easier for doctors from other countries to immigrate here, right? That would be another way you could increase supply of actually skilled doctors very very quickly. But the one thing where this would get really tricky is. If you are imagining a single-payer system that has some of this pricing power and is bringing costs down, right? So you're listening to what single-payer advocates say about single-payer. Now you're trying to increase supply at the same moment that you're probably making like the work of being a doctor less remunerative, which would lead to a certain number of doctors. It's a, a profession that can skew older, and there are particularly areas where there's not that much supply and a bunch of the doctors are older, and they may leave the profession. Um, or you may see hospitals go down. So I, I think it's a possible thing to do, but I think there will be a transition period that can be difficult. The other thing that I would note is that a really big supply problem even now is not so much like overall national supply, but geographical spread of supply. And so if you are in Miami, there are a lot of doctors. And if you're in their rural areas where you really have to go quite far to see certain kinds of specialists, an interesting question there is over time, do things like telemedicine uh, begin to, to make that at least a little bit easier? But one thing that we, we do need to think about is we're a very big country. We have a lot of very rural areas. And um, while I don't think this is really a single-payer problem, I do think that we have a lot of issues with sort of rural distribution of healthcare resources, and we don't have a great way of solving them. And actually, the one other supply issue I worry about the most in our current system is the supply of 
pretty low-wage home health aides, which is not a very desirable position. You know, this involves often taking care of someone who can't take care of themselves, a lot of washing and bathing and daily tasks of life. And it is a position with really high turnover that is um, sometimes hard to fill. And I don't see... That seems like a harder one to deal with. There isn't a desire to pay these people a lot of money, but their skills are um, are, are pretty needed. And that, that seems like a space where there is a challenge in getting enough supply. All right. I've got a question that's very relevant to our show from Rachel P. How do you find good papers? NBER.org. <laughs> I've taken recently, and this I've not we've not used a ton of these on the show, but I've been just asking people on Twitter. Uh, I've sort of just been like, "What are some good political science papers lately?" I find the the difficulty of following non NBER released papers in various disciplines really personally frustrating. Like political science does not have a good centralized way to follow the research, and it's even worse because a lot of the papers are working papers. So even if you're watching the journals, a lot of the stuff that people are talking about now it won't be published in a final form in a journal for years. So it's like, it's a hugely informal network of how people are finding out what the interesting research is. And so like, I've asked people to send me stuff, which they do sometimes, I, I ask on Twitter, but I, I really wish um, poli-sci, sociology, et cetera, would make this a little bit easier on us poor struggling journalists. Well, and just to explain for people who are not like NBER aficionados, so the deal with NBER is every Monday they post this list of economics working papers. And they come from very highly respected economists. A lot of them go on to be very interesting studies. And so, you know, every Monday you can check NBER for the latest economics research. And it's a really helpful repository that, um, you know, I follow journals like JAMA, New England Journal of Medicine. Um, Health Affairs is another journal that I like. And I also use social media to find them. But the nice thing about NBER is it's just, it's reliable. Every Monday, you're going to get a bunch of economics working papers. This time of year, a lot of people want to give back, but it's not always obvious to choose, like, where do you want to donate? You might see friends posting online about something they're supporting or, or get a call from somebody who's, who's looking to raise money, but that's not the best way to actually uh, decide what's a useful cause to support with your money. And GiveWell is the answer to that. They recommend a short list of top-rated, evidence-based charities that help your charitable dollar go the furthest. It's really important to understand the, the methods that they use. A lot of charity rating organizations We'll do something very superficial. They'll like look at how much of the money goes to overhead or, or something like that. But but what's really important isn't how is the money spent, but is the money spent on things that actually help? That's what makes GiveWell unique. They look for charities that do the most good in terms of lives saved or improved with every dollar donated. They recommend nine top charities that met their exacting standards. These groups are highly evidence-backed. They help the poorest people in the world. So one of their top charities is the Against Malaria Foundation. It distributes five nets to prevent malaria and avert child deaths. Another GiveWell top charity, Give Directly, it just it gives cash directly to very poor people to buy the things that they need most. Uh, there's rigorous studies that strongly support these programs having a large impact on the people that they serve. You don't need to just take their word for it. Uh, all the details of GiveWell's work are available for free on its website. It's really like exhaustive research documentation into why they think these are the most cost-effective charities out there. But also, if you, if you do want to take their word for it, uh, you can just look at the quick list to find the people to give to. So you go to www.givewell.org and you can leverage thousands of hours that their staff has put into finding exceptional charities. Then you'll give money to one of those charities. You will feel good about yourself and rightly so.
So I uh, am interested in a question here, which is about Matt's 2015 article, American Democracy is Doomed. And, and the question asks, given that at least one incumbent party is likely to resist any given reform bill or amendment, um, so multi-member districts, four-year House terms, a new Voting Rights Act, like sort of anything you could imagine that would substantially change the way the system works is probably going to be blocked given how the system is. How doomed are we? Is there an optimistic case that we're more like post-imperial Britain than the collapsing Roman Empire? Well, I want to draw a couple of distinctions here. When I say that American democracy is doomed, I'm not trying to say that like the American nation state or American society is necessarily doomed. Uh, France, for example, right, has existed as a as a state uh, for several hundred years. But during that time, they've had, you know, some revolutions. They've had some uh, episodes of being conquered by Germany, a lot of changes in the fundamental political regime. And, and my view is that the regime is doomed, not a American society. Um, I, I agree with him, though, that like we are not going to enact the fundamental reforms that we need. I'm, it's not like a, a hyperbolic take on my part. I, I think that the American constitutional system will collapse. And my hope is that when it does collapse, enough people of goodwill understand that Regardless of the specific bad acts surrounding that collapse, the larger issue is that the system is unworkable and we should replace it with a different one when the time comes, rather than doing what they've often done in Argentina, which is have the constitutional order collapse and then just return to the old one rather than actually fixing it. I think a collapse will probably come someday, and I think there will be some kind of return to democratic rule because there's fundamental reasons for that. But what we ought to do is come up with a with a different system uh, to, to put into place. This has nothing to do with like collapse of Rome type scenarios in which like epidemic diseases wiped out a third of the population and the country was overrun by barbarians. I, I don't I don't I mean, that could happen, I, but I don't really see why it would happen and it has nothing to do with the Constitution. Okay, Tim Ding asks, what's a policy that you think needs to be changed that no one is talking about? All right, I'll, I'll answer this in two chunks. One, one at a principle level. We are just bad at revisiting policy. Uh, for the most part, people want to do like new, exciting things, not go and make technical modifications to old things. And also as a, like a political power problem, Things that are around have developed constituencies, even for weird parts of, of how they work, whereas like new things do not necessarily have constituencies behind them. And so we are just bad at doing modernization um, for, for most of our, our policy architectures. We have a lot of things that are very outdated. I mean, I would heavily revisit the American healthcare system. I, I think the American healthcare system is very- We talk about that one. That one's a cop-out. Is that a cop-out, you think? All right, well, then you answer and I'll come oh, up with I'll another answer. one. So I have a very specific healthcare policy. Oh, come so, on. <laughs> no, that no one talks about. <laughs> okay, fine, fine. I, you can do your answer. But no, you give your specific one, yeah. Okay, so I think we should <laughs> revisit the meaningful use standards of the High Tech Act, which no, like, who's talking about? There are some trade publications. But this actually relates to a story I worked on earlier this year about fax machines and medicine. And it really actually comes back to a policy. When you talk to the Obama people who implemented it, they say, like, yeah, we didn't get this policy right. And what they were trying to do with the High Tech Act, they were trying to create a healthcare system where all of our doctors could talk to each other and, like, your orthopedist and your primary care doctor, they could, like, share an x-ray. And they got everyone to adopt digital records, but they didn't get people 
to share. Basically, you know, the orthopedists have their digital x-ray. Your primary care doctor has a digital record that doesn't have the x-ray. And mostly they just send things around by fax machines still. And a lot of that is actually a policy failure where there was no firm push to say you have to digitize and you have to talk to each other. They just kind of assumed, well, once people digitize, like, of course, they're going to talk to each other. Nobody really talks about it because it's pretty in the weeds of like a 2009 chunk of the stimulus. And it's not even in the stimulus. It's like rules promulgated after the stimulus. But I don't think it's working. And I think it's actually creating a lot of problems. All right. So I will I will also try to give a more specific one on Sarah's request, which is I think that we would do a lot of good by revisiting how we do the copyright and patent and broader intellectual property system. I don't think it it works well for the modern era. I think there are a lot of places where we could be looking at alternatives. So in the pharmaceutical space, I think it'd be good to have a parallel system that worked off of prizes where, say, the government could say, if you invent a molecule or, or a treatment of some kind that does X thing for Y disease, we will give you a billion dollars. But after that, it's completely, you know, it's it's completely open on the market. Any generic manufacturer can make it. Um, I, I just think there's a lot of gains to be made in easing the way forward for innovation. I think a lot of economic drag is happening from so-called patent trolling and from companies who are buying each other in order to like arm themselves. Like Google bought Motorola or the shell of Motorola to like take on all of Motorola's patent portfolio, not because like they wanted the intellectual property necessarily, but because it allowed them very effectively to sue or countersue people who were coming after them with weird patent litigation. I just think that system is fucked up and we would be wise to revisit it. I I think the practice in the United States that we take for granted, where the federal government, state governments, and local governments actually levy different kinds of taxes, seems like a mistake to me. I think there should be one tax system, and then there could be some optionality where it's like states can decide how much kind of extra tax they want to collect versus having low tax, and then they could delegate further authority to, to localities. But having these, like, the system where, like, property taxes are just, like, owned by local government, and then income taxes are owned by the federal government, and then sales taxes are typically owned by state governments, it's, it's weird. It doesn't really make sense. It arose for very sort of contingent historical reasons. Many foreign countries don't do it that way. They do a single system with piggybacking. And it's like, even in the most blue sky type tax reform conversations, nobody wants to revisit this idea. All right. I have a question that I think is for Ezra from Edward Mahoney, who wants to know what policy change could solve the problem of tribal epistemology in the age of internet and cable news without doing damage to the First Amendment? Or, due to human nature, are we doomed to forever live in a world of people on both sides choosing their own facts? I think it is sometimes good to embracing to answer a policy question like this by saying there is no answer. I do not think there's a policy change that could be made that would substantially change this. I mean, there's little things you could do on the margin to try to deal with fake news. But keeping people from choosing information sources in a competitive information market that they prefer— I actually think it's useful to think about this in any other context, right? Like, think about other things that are not, like, news and have the civic dimension to them, but are entertainment. And, like, is there a way to choose to keep people, if there's a lot of entertainment choices, from watching a sitcom that you think is stupid rather than, like, a like a <laughs> costume drama that you think is, like, good? The answer is no. Like, people, people go with their preferences. I think those of us who are interested in news and politics— 
often like to imagine that interest as very high-minded, but but in the way the brain works and in the way we operate, it, it tends to operate more as a hobby and a preference and, and an interest like any other. Some people love reading about sports and some people love reading about politics. And those have psychologically, there's a lot of experimentation on this, very similar pathways in the brain, very similar emotional responses re- uh, related to them. And so people are going to choose things they like. I think that the place you have to go is to try to create more accountability uh, on politicians. So to the extent you can, people are, uh, they, they have better reasons to try to get things right. Because even with people choosing a lot of news, like if you crush the economy, people get upset about that. And one thing that is a theme in my writing and my coverage of how we structure political systems is that we have a lot of dimensions of the American system where we we make the accountability hard to levy. Uh, elections are happening at all different kinds for all different groups. A filibuster makes it hard to say like, did something happen because somebody did it or did it not happen because they were stopped by the minority party? And if so, who do you blame? I think we can make it easier for people to hold voters, uh, politicians accountable based on real outcomes. But in terms of what kinds of things people are going to seek out to believe, I don't think there's a lot we can do and certainly not on a policy level. I think you're up to ask a question. All right. I thought this was pretty interesting from Robert Orr. How do the Weeds hosts think through what appears to be a trade-off between more immigration and welfare? That a trade-off appears to exist uh, seems to explain the U.S.'s idiosyncratically small welfare state, but maybe that's worth having more immigrants. And I also want to note, I would just add into this question just broader diversity, right? The U.S. is a more multi-ethnic state, it's more racial diversity than most developed competitors. And I think a lot of the immigration research is very similar to the research on that. And, and together, they do speak to why uh, we have less social solidarity, and 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 that that's been a impediment for our social welfare state uh, for its expansion. I don't think that it's clear that the immigration welfare state trade-off exists. I mean, I think that if you look at the sort of Anglophone countries, they systematically have more immigration than continental Europe and also systematically have smaller welfare states. But I don't think you need to say that the immigration explains it. These are all high immigration countries because they're sort of settler states, right? And if you compare them to each other, Canada has more immigration than the United States and a more robust welfare state than the United States. Uh, Australia has even more immigration than Canada, but it's between the U.S. and Canada in terms of the size of its welfare state. Uh, Ireland, which partakes of a similar English-speaking civic culture, has the least immigration and also the smallest welfare state of all those countries. You go over to the Nordics, right? Sweden has way more immigrants than Finland, but like very similar-sized welfare states. So I don't think, I mean, I think there's these sort of like broad cultural blocks that have very different welfare states and also have sort of different attitudes toward immigration. But that's like a that's like a sociological observation, right? Then the question is, is like, is this a variable that you can tweak, right? Could the United States, by clamping down on immigration, somehow become Finland? And I don't think that that makes sense. You see that Sweden has dialed up immigration, and it's still fundamentally a Nordic society. Uh, Canada has dialed up immigration, but it's still basically an Anglophone society with a small segment of French people living there who make it more left-wing than Australia. Uh, So yeah, I I know this is like a widespread hot take that immigration and and the welfare state are are sharp trade-offs, but I, I, I think it's wrong. Yeah, and I feel like I've seen this in my reporting from a slightly different angle that I don't think our welfare state, as it particularly as it relates to healthcare programs, which I know the best, is especially hospitable or spending a lot of 
money on immigrants at this point. If you look at the actual policies, for example, I reported a story about refugees from the Middle East who um, who historically did not qualify for Medicaid. You actually had to be here for five years. You got something called emergency Medicaid that would kind of kick in if something really catastrophic happened. Even for a lot of federal programs, you need to be in the United States for five years before you actually qualify for them. So for things like Medicaid, for example. You know, the other way I see this coming up is less like a policy trade-off and more in shaping the policy discussion. So we've talked a lot, uh, or at least at some length on this show, about this idea of who deserves help. And I think that really shaped our politics a lot this year in terms of the debate around the Affordable Care Act. Um, and, And I think immigration plays into that debate in a pretty major way when we think of who deserves something, you know, something like healthcare, which in the United States we haven't really decided is a right in the way another a lot of other countries have. We end up debating, you know, well, who should get this? Who is worthy of this? And I think there's a strain of thinking that's powerful in the United States. Like you're here and you're working, and like those are the people who really deserve benefits. And I think it comes up in that way when people think about how big our welfare state should be, how welcoming it should be to other people news about immigration, maybe not as much the exact amount, shapes the discussion about what the welfare state should look like. Question number two here asks, uh, to what extent has Obamacare, watching the implementation, watching it all all unfold, uh, influenced uh, your thinking about the role of government in in healthcare? And I'm I'm really interested in what what both Ezra and Sarah think about this, because you're big Obamacare people. Big Obamacare brains. Um, So it has made me... It has made me believe more strongly in the role of government and healthcare markets, essentially. I see the Affordable Care Act as really two separate coverage expansions. One that was Medicaid, basically socialized medicine, or I don't know if you'd go that far. That was basically a single-payer sort of system at the state level, and one that was this really tightly regulated government marketplace. And I think we've seen the Medicaid expansion has been much more successful, less problematic. People are happier in those plans than they are in the marketplace plans, whereas the marketplace has been a lot of tumult, a lot of raising premiums, a lot of insurance companies dropping out. And there are government-run markets that are more tightly regulated than ours, like Germany, for example, has sickness funds that compete in this much more regulated environment, even more than the healthcare.gov environment. But I I think the Affordable Care Act and these kind of experiments I've been running in parallel, they have made me believe more strongly in in the federal role or in some government role in managing a healthcare system. And this is different than where I was like six years ago when the health marketplaces were like this bright, shiny object and they seem like this cool, exciting policy experiment. I think the results of this experiment are relying on these private partners. It came with a lot of a lot of downsides that are being exposed right now. So I, I'm trying to think of how to say this. I have a slightly, I think at this point, like unpopular view on this, which is uh, I think that there is nothing about Obamacare that couldn't have worked, but its theory, its political theory was wrong. And so it it is not going to work, which is to say that. When you say Obamacare, you mean like the I mean, I marketplace? Mean the whole thing, but okay. I recognize your point about separating okay. into two batches but but let's just take the marketplaces here for a minute which is that one lesson of obamacare um which i was not surprised by really at the time but but i think i've been surprised by how vociferous this was vociferously this was true is that compromise policy is not in any way lead to compromise politics or policy stability 
So I wasn't shocked that no Republicans voted for the Affordable Care Act, even though it was very based on ideas that Republicans had been interested in in the, in the previous years. But I was surprised by how intense the hatred of it was, given that it was a policy designed to like be not that offensive. If you can imagine a world where like Republicans liked Obamacare the way they liked uh, in Massachusetts Mitt Romney's proposal. And so like in Massachusetts, I think Massachusetts care went pretty well. And like you could very much have imagined a political system that was more technocratic, like and was interested in dialing the different policies in Obamacare up and down to get it right. And so like maybe you dial the individual mandate up a little bit and you dial the subsidies up a little bit and you dial, you know, some regulations down a little bit and like, you know, whatever. There's like you could have tried a lot of things here. But that wasn't how the politics worked out. Democrats didn't have power. Republicans just wanted to like destroy the whole thing to see it burn. And so it's not going to work. And so uh, one thing that I do think Obamacare suggests is that in a world where we have pretty harshly partisan politics, in a world where policy compromise is not going to be very likely, you want fairly simple, straightforward proposals. And you want them to have pretty automatic ways in which they adjust their spending or, or or they at least don't need that much fine-tuning going forward. So I think like Sarah, Obamacare has moved me more towards thinking that, you know, just expand public programs and be done with it. Although, again, one thing I think is interesting is that Obamacare has really changed where the Democratic Party is on this. I think people a little bit, it's easy to forget how much Obamacare was a compromise within different factions of the Democratic Party. Like the votes that were really hard to get were like Ben Nelson from Nebraska and Joe Lieberman from Connecticut. And these were players who were were not willing to, to do things that I think they should have been willing to do. But I think next time if Democrats do this, they would be wise to not play a game with 60 and instead just use reconciliation and try to expand some public programs. So policy compromise is a, is a fool's game. That's my that's my bottom line. But I don't really think that the, the underlying policies here have been as discredited in theory, but not being discredited in theory isn't worth that much if you can't make it work in political practice. All right, Matt. What explains your sharp reversal on corporate taxation in the last few years? And we have some citations from your slate days, too. Hypocrite. To I think this, Hypocrite. Is a, this is a smear campaign that, that Weeds listener Robert Orr is mounting against me. Uh, what I say in that slate article is that it would make sense to eliminate the corporate income tax entirely. But the problem is you would have to make up the revenue. And I suggest that we could make up the revenue with higher dividend and capital gains taxes. Uh, what Republicans are doing is partially not making up the revenue at all and partially making up the revenue with higher taxes on sort of middle class taxpayers. Uh, that is a, a poor swap. Um, I, I continue to think. So here's an important technical issue, right, is that the corporate income tax sort of passes through to shareholders but it hits you no matter how you own your shares. So if you own your shares through a 401k or an IRA, other kinds of tax-preferred accounts, you still sort of pay the corporate income tax, whereas dividend and capital gains taxes actually spare the sort of typical middle-class stock owner who owns it through special retirement plans. So I think there's a specific distributional reason to prefer them, as well as the various administrative reasons that I outlined in the slate piece. Uh, it's true that concrete partisan politics and wind up being different from sort of abstract discussions. But I think that there is a consistent viewpoint here. I have uh, another so one for Sarah. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, thank, thank you for, for your question, Robert. <laughs> I have another one for Sarah here that I'm interested in. All right. 
because I think this is something that you've begun to hear Republicans uh, say in, in a way that was like unthinkable a decade ago. Uh, what is the best way to respond to someone who says Obamacare is just a way to make insurance companies richer? That they're not getting richer. <laughs> um, Aren't they getting richer? Well, I mean, you see insurance companies jump, dropping out of Obamacare. Yeah, I guess like, they're getting richer for other reasons. They're getting or richer. Or bought by drugstores. Yeah, so yes, exactly. <laughs> so if you're, if you're Edna, you're getting acquired by a drugstore, which is a little embarrassing because you're a health insurance company. You know, the way I would, res- I guess that is kind of my response, is that the marketplaces haven't really been a desirable place to sell coverage. You've seen like the biggest players and, you know, the ones that are publicly traded, United, Cigna, Aetna, you know, pull out of the marketplaces. Um, It was such, it's such a rarity to make money on the marketplaces that Bloomberg did this big splashy profile of this one health insurance company you haven't heard of called Centene that's actually being quite successful in the marketplaces. But I guess, you know, I would... Oh, I see. I think this question's coming at it from a different angle. Like about, yes. like this is from like your liberal relatives right. who are asking about. But well, so for anybody, can, can, okay. I, can I connect this though? Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, sure. to the earlier I'm, question, right? So, yes, so you're saying like you're the the criticism is oh this law is a big giveaway to insurance companies, and your defense is like well actually the insurance companies aren't making money, but then how does that relate to like like lessons learned from the Affordable Care Act because. It seems like it. it it's the the policy is not going to work unless insurance companies make money. Can I add one one addition to this to make this Go even on. harder? I now see a lot of folks, and I've even retweeted this from Larry Levitt and others, being like, "Obamacare is stabilizing," and it'll be like a chart of insurance company like profits in Obamacare, which is a weird position for liberals to be in. Like they didn't used to like insurance company profits, but now it's like, look, they're they're doing okay. They're right. making money off of Obamacare enrollees. Sure. I will say that's <laughs> after a bunch of companies lost a bunch totally. of money and right. exited the marketplace. So I think like those charts, like right. yes, that's totally but, true. But it implies that Obamacare would be even better if insurance companies like right. were making tons more money. Yes. So it is true. I mean, the private marketplaces, they depend on insurance companies saying it is a good business decision to enter these marketplaces. And usually they say it's a good business decision when they think they can have some level of a profit margin. So it is certainly true having these private marketplaces, there are people who are making money off of that. I would say, though, I think the, um, and and I've had people call me like a shell for the insurance industry for this, and that's fine. But I think the focus on insurance profits is somewhat misplaced. Most insurance companies are running like a 3 to 4% margin. The biggest margins in, by far in healthcare are in the pharmaceutical industry, are in the drug space, where they are making a lot of money. And so I think this focus on, oh, this is just a giveaway to the insurance companies, I don't think that's quite right. The insurance companies are turning all that money over to drug companies that are creating these expensive new pills, to emergency rooms that I've been writing about that are charging some pretty high fees. So I think there are things like, like you should get outraged about the amount that we spend on healthcare. I don't know that all the outrage placed at insurance plans is especially well-placed. You know, as I've been reporting on this, I think a lot more goes to the people who actually make the units of healthcare. Okay, here's here's a fun one. Uh, who, who's going to lose their position of power first? Uh, Speaker Paul Ryan, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, or President Donald Trump? So is, I think there's Is there one... a none of the above option? Wait, one of them's got to lose oh, well, it they're, first. They're just going to rule indefinitely? <laughs> well, 
was though. I was thinking in like a resignation, shameful sort of way. No, just losing okay. one way or the other. <laughs> uh, they all they all go at the same time. They jump together. Like a Heaven's Gate. Sort so of I guess one interesting question about this is becoming leader of the minority. If you're not voted out of leadership, does that count as losing your position of power? Right. Uh. I'd like to go for like the full like you can't be leader anymore at all. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, if if your view is that Mitch McConnell could hang on as minority leader, then he's still hanging on. I think Paul Ryan. Oh, it's definitely Paul. Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, like, like right, why so, Paul Ryan? So a couple things. So Paul Ryan to me has the weakest grip on power of all of them within the Republican Party. He's got the weakest base. There's the most mistrust of him within the body he controls. Like, if it were just who was going to win Republican presidential primaries forever, uh, I think Donald Trump would do fine um, for the foreseeable future. Mitch McConnell does have a fair amount of loyalty from Republican members of the Senate. There are not serious challenges to his authority. But Paul Ryan is, like, continuously on thin ice. And I think particularly Republicans, like, lose the House, uh, which seems totally possible to me in, in 2018. He, he could go. And even, even if they don't, but it just gets closer and he's ineffective, I think he could get toppled. The one reason that now I'm doubting this as I, as I actually run out the theory is that unlike Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump could lose power not because Republicans lose faith in him, but because the broader country does. And I think that could happen. I think that will happen, actually. I think Donald, I'm of the view that Donald Trump is unlikely to win re-election, assuming he runs. So I'm changing my view, actually. I think it's going to be Trump, but oh, that's hard between Trump and Ryan. I don't. I, I would not bet a lot of money either way. I mean, we also have the Russia investigation as a big wild card in in all of this as well. I just think the House GOP caucus is like on tilt in like a weird way. Like they voted for a tax bill that like <laughs> raises taxes on orphans and like. <laughs> crazy stuff when they knew it was going to have to get sent back by the Senate. For some reason, Ryan has been, we had this question about Medicare earlier and like we all agree, like they're not actually going to take on Medicare next year because that would be crazy. But so why is Paul Ryan saying they're going to? Like it's, I don't know, I don't know what's happening there. But But the counterpoint on Ryan is I feel like he's held off the insurgency for, like how long has he been leader at this point? Year and a half? No, it's longer. It's longer than that. Well, I guess Boehner went down in 2015. You might be right. I think Boehner only <laughs> stepped down in 2015. It feels like a lifetime because he's really I feel like really he's already held it. off a number of insurgencies. Um, I think it is surprising he's gotten people to vote for the shoddy bills he's putting together. I mean, like, he's gotten a lot of people to walk a lot of planks. Uh, but you're yeah, but right. Why? Like, there's not really been, there's been a lot of grumbling, but there's like, not been- Like, who's the guy who takes him down? That's the hard thing. That, like, like, what is the path towards this? Well, the path of how you get Paul Ryan to go down is easy. It's the same as the one with Boehner, which right, is Right, right, but like, who's running that? Exactly. Like, they, and like they with don't Boehner, have any idea who comes Ryan. next. you ended up with Ryan. You didn't end up with, like, Tea Party right-wing leader. Right. So, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Stuff. Stuff. Mitch McConnell wins this game. So our last question, um, it's it's not very hard, guys. What blogs and podcasts do all of us listen to or read? I'll go first, uh, if that's cool. Yeah. So I'm going to go with some some newer ones I've been into. Uh, I, I, should we say Vox Media podcasts are off limits yes, here? Yes, all right. we cannot um, promote our own podcasts. Okay, but I do listen to those. So I love Death, Sex, and Money uh, by Anna Sale, uh, which is just like a really cool show about... 
death, sex, and money and the struggles people have among those things. It's a really human show, and I find it to be a very particularly nice thing to watch in this era. Uh, I like More Perfect from Radiolab, I think is really good. I like On Being by Krista Tippett. Uh, I'm trying to do not my like super political ones uh, because, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of politics out there right now. I like still processing a lot uh, with Wesley Morris and, and Jenna Wortham from the New York Times. Like, I think they do a really great culture podcast, and, and I'm really excited every time it pops up into my feed. Um, I listen to the editors at National Review, uh, which I think is a is a good podcast to get things from from another perspective. And I will end this with In Our Time, the BBC Radio 4 podcast, just like like erudite discussions about weird things. I think it's pretty fun. I, I don't really I don't really listen to a lot of podcasts like in our in our area here, but um, I really enjoyed the Accidental Tech podcast, which is about technology. Um, and Mike Duncan's uh, various podcasts, his History of Rome and his his series on on different revolutions. Uh, I, I think those are great and a, a sort of refreshing break from politics. Yeah, so I mostly don't listen to politics podcasts. So I'll tell you my top ones. I'm looking at my library. Probably my favorite podcast of recent years is The Uncertain Hour of a Marketplace, particularly the first season, which was all about welfare reform. Um, I just found it fascinating, and the stories are told in a super human way, and I never really knew I wanted a six-hour explainer on welfare reform until they produced it, but it was just really, really interesting, and I thought really well done. Um, I'm also a big fan of, you know, this is way outside of politics at this point, but Homecoming from Gimlet, which is essentially a radio drama. So it's a fictional podcast that is serialized over weeks. Um, David Schwimmer plays one of the main characters in it. I just found it a really nice break from reality. Um, I listen to it when I ride my bike, and I really enjoy that. Um, oh, I've gotten really, really into the last one I'll say I've gotten super into lately is the Heaven's Gate podcast, which is a 10-part, I think, piece. It's still going. Um, series on what happened with the Heaven's Gate cult um, in the 1990s. And it's something, I was kind of like an age when I was a kid. I like vaguely knew about it. Like I could get a joke and like a cultural reference to it. But um, this podcast, it is from, I don't know, Stitcher and Pineapple Street Media. They're just digging like super, super deep into this. And again, this was not something I knew I wanted to listen to a podcast about. But now that I've been listening, I am completely hooked on it. And that's my my dog walking podcast. All right. Well, these are great questions, y'all. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you to everybody who participates in the Weeds Facebook group, which is where we got these and has just like been a really delightful little corner of the internet. Yeah, absolutely. Um and uh, you know, if you if you still have a burning desire for more audio content, gotta check out the rest of the Vox Media podcast. Which I really do podcast. listen to. That's actually one reason that was hard. Yeah, no, no. There's there's good ones out there. Also, Ezra's show, which is it's okay, it's okay, best. Wow. Um, no, no, I'm kidding. I'm it's kidding. Fine. It's fine. It's, it's cra- Matt's cranky. Worldly, worldly has been really great lately, though. Yeah. Yes, and say. actually, a lot of crazy stuff has been happening yeah. in international affairs. I've been needing that podcast, so I want to give them like a like all the podcasts are great. I think you're interesting has been really great. I loved his interview, uh, Todd's interview with Russell Brand. But I feel like we've had a lot of intense foreign policy news recently, yeah. and I've really needed somebody to tell me what is going on. And Worldly has been there for me. Although I will give a shout out to Todd's podcast. I really liked his episode. I just did. <laughs> no, I know, I know. But I was I, I want another episode that I think people would like. Is he talked to all the people involved with the Big Sick, which is one of my favorite movies this oh, year. Oh, cool. And I thought that episode was another one that is worth checking out 
So with that, uh, thanks to everyone who's listening. Thanks to uh, thanks to everybody who asked questions and who participates in, in the Facebook group. A special thanks to Julie Bogan, who helped uh, organize this whole thing, orchestrated it. Thanks to our producer, Peter Leonard. And we will uh, we'll see you soon.